0: if you're on your own in business and you have a company, probably get a standard constitution. If you have two people in business or more, then look at a tailored constitution and think about all the things that can go wrong if someone passes away or becomes disabled or becomes divorced and all that stuff. And how those things that can go wrong should be recorded in tailored constitution. If you have multiple companies or a unit trust or whatever around, if something happened, if all of a sudden some person passed away, what's going to happen to all of those things in those entities? Will the business continue? Is the factory going to remain where it is? All that stuff.
1: You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 271 of Text Talks. this is Hyda Robson and thank you to CLASS for sponsoring this episode. Why do you need a constitution in the first place? Where do constitutions stop and shareholder agreements start? And what do constitutions cover that replaceable rules don't? These are just some of the questions Damon Lehman of Andrew EF Lawyers in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. Where shall we start? I did read your article about tailored constitutions. And what surprised me was that you basically said... It's a nice way to have everything together, so to have just one document and not to have a separate shareholder agreement. And that took me by surprise because I thought constitutions governed very different things to shareholder agreements. I thought a constitution was between the company and the shareholders, and then the shareholder agreement was the agreement among the shareholders. So... That understanding, of course, doesn't work with the definition of tailored constitutions. So my understanding must be flawed somewhere.
0: Look, I, I think um, it's important to backtrack just a little bit. So what you've said is sort of a common understanding or really a misunderstanding about shareholders' agreements and constitutions. But it goes back to how the corporate law developed. And I find understanding a lot of these areas of the law, it's helpful to know the history behind things and First of all, why do we have these things called companies or corporations? And essentially they were invented for the purposes of land holding. You had the queen or you had the clergy who had a lot of land and they didn't want it to be like, okay, when the king dies, it goes to his son, even though the son might not be the next king. So they had to create this idea of a corporation that was a legal person beyond a human that could own stuff and that it would forever exist in perpetuity and would own things. And the Pope is another one. The Holy See is, a, is another corporation that's been around for hundreds of years. So these corporations evolved for specific purposes, and they seem really weird when you think about them today, about what they are, but they were he created to, to fit that concept, and they were their own legal person. But the way then you could create your own legal person, you had to have back then, back in pre-1600s, you needed either a royal charter or an act of parliament to sort of bring this new person into being, this corporation that has a, a body, a corpus of its own. And if you weren't well-connected, you couldn't get one of those. You didn't know someone in parliament or you didn't know the king, so you couldn't create your own legal person. But around this time, we, you know, the Europeans discovered the new world. There was a lot of opportunity for people to make a lot of money. The law, as usual, is chasing to catch up. And there were people who were happy to finance ships to go all around the world to make them a lot of money, but that was a, a riskier exercise. So people would pull their money all together, share the risk and reward, and there'll be a collective that would act as one. But because most people didn't know the king or the parliamentarian, they had to figure out a way, even though they couldn't be their own legal person, there was still a group of people acting as one, they had to... Record that somehow. And those were called joint stock companies, but essentially were a big partnership. But they, to to figure out the way they would operate, they created the precursor to the shareholders' agreement, which is an agreement between all the members of this collective about how they would treat each other, how they would make decisions, and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't a constitution because there was no legal person that was the corporation that, that was separate from them. The thing they were dealing with was just a collective of these humans, and they then had their agreement. And they so, call it a joint stock company, a company as in keeping good company amongst many people. And then the point is that that sort of system was around between about 1500s and 1800s. And then in mid-1800s, 1844 and onwards, they simplified this system of making your own legal person, and it was a system of registration after that. There was this famous committee, the Gladstone Committee in the Britain, that said, okay, we'll change the law. If you're a collective that want to be recognised as one legal person with a corpus, body, you just need to register. And that registration system still continues today under ASIC, and that meant now everyone in business who was a collective could have their own legal person, and now everyone had their own constitution although back then they were called the Articles of Association. We renamed those in 1998. But now we've had 200 years of shareholder agreement law being developed. Now everyone's cottoning on to this constitution law area being developed. And now everyone has both because there's still confusion about whether a constitution is, like you said at the beginning, an agreement between just the company and its members and not necessarily agreement between member and member. And that was unclear for about 50 or 100 years until in Australia, in about 1985 to 1998, we changed the laws. So now there's section 140 of the Corporations Act, which says your constitution is in fact a contract between, yes, the company and the members, but also the members and the other members. So the shareholder agreement Sort of became defunct and obsolete from the time we clarified the constitution. Now covers all the same ground that the shareholders' agreement uh, used to cover, going back 500 years, but now doesn't need to cover anymore. And having both at the same time, which a lot of people still tend to have, creates numerous issues, mostly about privity of contract and inconsistency between the documents.
1: Shareholder agreements are basically redundant now, that we only need a constitution and that the constitution covers all relationships between members and the company as well as among members. So I also read that a constitution can also govern the relationship between company and directors. Is that right?
0: Uh, Yes, that is right. I didn't mention it, but section 140, subsection one of the Corporations Act says very clearly now that the constitutions between company and members, director and company, and member and member. And that's so pretty clearly set out.
1: Yeah, so it basically covers everything now.
0: Everything now. So, but shareholders' agreement, agreements are still a thing, but they're only a thing because, well, in my opinion, the legal profession is conservative and slow to change, and I think haven't necessarily built confidence in this idea of a tailored constitution because these things they have names that have developed over a long time but they're just names that are given to agreements right so the constitution has traditionally been seen as the nuts and bolts of how the company works goes in that document but if we want to talk about how people come and go and exit scenarios we'll put that in our shareholders agreement and that's what we do because that's how we've always done it right but There's no reason you can't put all that shareholders' agreement, traditional stuff, into the constitution. And that's what we recommend that people do, which we call a tailored constitution. But it's really just a constitution that covers all those things. And the the great reason to have them all in the same document is because then, first of all, you only have to look in one place. But the main reason is that you don't have to have these arguments about inconsistency between them. Because you used to have the constitution, which was... Well, really, now it's between everyone, like the members, directors, and company. And then you'd have the shareholders agreement just between the shareholders. And the shareholders agreement would have a clause typically that said, if there's an inconsistency between the constitution and shareholders agreement, then the shareholders agreement will prevail. So, But then you have a weird situation where the shareholders agreement, because it's a contract between the members, the shareholders, could be forcing you to act in a way contrary to the constitution. And the constitution is now a statutory contract. So arguably, depending on what the shareholders agreement is forcing you to do, contrary to the constitution, is making you breach the corporate law. So you have this weird situation, let alone you might have a constitution might be silent about a particular issue. And then you have to have an argument about, well, is is the silence interpreted as it's a free reign for a shareholders agreement to talk about this issue? Was is it the constitution saying or implying that that's forbidden? And you have to have all these arguments because just because you have two separate pieces of paper where you can just put them all in the one in a constitution that's beefed up with the things you want in it and that covers it. So the reason shareholders agreements are around are just through what the, the slow moving action of of the law profession is sort of what I would say.
1: So the lesson for the day is basically only have a constitution. Incorporate whatever you had regulated within your shareholder agreement, incorporate that in the constitution so that you just have one document and you don't have any documents that contradict your constitution, et cetera.
0: That's right. And just uh, if I may, one last point to be made as well is that the constitution, that section 140 I mentioned, uh, says that the constitution is a statutory contract between company directors and members. And what that means is it is contract created by the legislation. So that means if a member comes and goes, shareholder comes and goes, they're automatically covered by the constitution because the legislation says so, right? But if a shareholder's agreement, is it doesn't arise out of legislation. It's just sort of a normal contract law contract. And because of that, the other issue you have with shareholder's agreement is that it's only binding on all the shareholders who signed it at that particular time. So if a new shareholder comes in and they don't sign the agreement, then they're not bound by it. And you can't often force people to sign stuff either. The classic example is a shareholder dies and their shares go through to their estate and you can't force their estate to, to sign up to the shareholders agreement. So now you have a situation where some shareholders are bound under this agreement and some aren't, you know, and, Because it doesn't have this automatic power that a constitution has. And that's why constitutions are so powerful.
1: I have two questions for you. The first one is tailored constitution. Isn't every constitution a tailored constitution?
0: Well, uh, what we're probably getting at there with that wording is a constitution that doesn't just cover the nuts and bolts stuff that people usually think of. So it doesn't just cover issue of shares and how votes are taken at meetings and that sort of stuff. But you can also add in things like Employee share schemes and exit scenarios are probably the other big one. The issue that comes up in this space is you'll have, say there's two shareholders, or sorry, two owners of a business, let's say, and they run the business through a company. And you might have one of them dies and that their half of the company goes to their spouse. And now the surviving owner is in business with the spouse and the spouse never liked them or just doesn't like business or whatever. But now they own 50% of the company and have to be involved in 50% of the decisions. And the, without a mechanism to force the spouse to sell out their half, it's an untenable situation. And it might be a very valuable company. It might've been built up over decades. Uh, but without a mechanism, which we we'll call like a, a buy sell or an exit scenario situation in, in the constitution, that's where you end up. So, the taylor constitution would include things like those uh, those exit rules yes. to to essentially figure out if someone dies becomes disabled or is divorced or something else to figure out a way where we're not ending up in this untenable situation.
1: What important areas the constitution would need to cover? I can imagine of three things. One is decision making. So how do we come to decisions within a meeting of members or a meeting of directors? How are decisions made? The second big area I can imagine is how do we decide whether we hire or fire a director or whether another shareholder is accepted into the company or not? And then the third area is what you already mentioned is exit strategies. If a shareholder wants in or out, how do we handle this? Are these the main three areas that a constitution needs to cover or are there more?
0: Uh, Look, I would say they're probably the main areas. Other areas that probably get a bit controversial are dividends and how they're to be paid or how companies are to be financed, uh, such as whether we require shareholders to put in more money or whether we go first to the bank and get uh, debt funding. But pretty much those are the main areas. I would say, yes.
1: If you have more than one shareholder, you should really never buy a constitution off the shelf. You should always have it tailored because you really need to look at the details and need to look at the relationship. Do you agree with that? Or do you think even for two or more shareholders, you can buy a constitution off the shelf?
0: Uh, no, I agree with that because exactly what you've mentioned, as soon as you have two people in business, then you have you know potential like where the spouse comes in if they pass away or, or that sort of thing. Because the those situations become a disaster, right? And another level even worth considering is, so a tailored constitution covers everything within one company, but the issues can even expand outwards when you have multiple entities in a small to medium business operation. So it's not uncommon where you'll have the operating company that runs the business and you might have the factory, which is held in a unit trust, And both sort of might be owned 50-50 or there might be, you know, 60-30 on this side or whatever. And if you don't have an agreement that sort of covers all the entities at once, which we would uh, would say is an owner's agreement, you can have situations where, okay, we successfully passed the 50% of the company to the surviving owner but the factory is still owned by the wife of the deceased person and she's now wanting to charge commercial rent for the first time. The business can't afford it, but she's legally entitled to do that. So if you don't deal with sort of all the entities that are part of the enterprise, then you have the same issues on a larger scale, unless you have something like an owner's agreement in place.
1: I mean, you have a company with just a sole member and a sole director, then replaceable rules are okay, correct?
0: Look, they're probably fine most of the time. The replaceable rules which I don't think we've sort of explained what they are, but they're in the Corporations Act and say, look, if you don't have an actual constitution yourself, we'll give you some rules for free. And they're contained in the Corporations Act. They're spread out amongst 20 different sections and those will apply automatically to any company in Australia that you have. So they cover most important things because it's just me, myself and I in that company. There isn't really much that's likely to go wrong. But the the issue will come in... Uh, that um, as soon as, if a new person joins, everyone will have to remember, okay, now's the time to update the constitution. You know, but if the business has been going for 10 years, that might not be on anyone's radar. So that sort of is the risk uh, with that. And also the replaceable rules, they're in the legislation. So in theory, the legislation can be changed tomorrow and all the rules for your corporation or your company have just changed as well. You don't really have any control over that. And also you've got to look up The corporations act which you know most people aren't as boring as me don't look that up so they wouldn't really know what the rules are in that scenario either
1: yes that's a very good point but coming back to the first point you made that If you just start the company alone and then 10 years later you bring a new shareholder in, a second shareholder in, and then of course nobody thinks of the constitution. That point I also think applies if you had a constitution right from the start because you would still need to probably amend the constitution because it's unlikely when it's just you that you think of all the ifs and whens. So I would think that when you bring a second or third shareholder in, then you need to revisit the constitution anyway because you might now have circumstances to govern that you didn't even think of 10 years ago. That's exactly
0: right. And that's probably one of your standard trigger points for things like estate planning and stuff like that too. You know, one of those sort of big milestone things in your life that you sort of need to reevaluate everything Uh, such as the constitution. That's right.
1: So the second lesson of the day is basically, if anything major happens with your company, revisit the constitution because now the constitution becomes really important. When it was just you, it was nice to have, but it didn't really matter so much. But now that a second person is coming in, you really need it and hence revisit it and make sure it still fits the purpose.
0: Yes, I agree with that. And um, the only thing to add would be if you have a enterprise, which is multiple companies and maybe a trust or, Whatever, to review that whole sort of blob of entities as well to, to see whether now we need the, the thing I mentioned an owner's agreement is essentially like an agreement that covers every entity in your business. So, it might control, uh, cover the three companies and the unit trust that owns the factory all in one agreement, as well as the underlying humans who are working in the business have one overriding agreement, which then will figure out okay, well, We want this person to be bought out here and the factory will be transferred into my sole name if you pass away and all that sort of stuff. So at least look at the constitution. But if it's a more complicated enterprise, which commonly they are, then you want to look sort of at the next level, which is not just the one company, but the three or four or more entities you have under a broader, what I call an owner's agreement. But that's right.
1: What does a standard of the shelf constitution cover? that replaceable roots don't cover?
0: Well, I mean, it sort of covers most things, but there's a couple of important things that it, that it won't cover, such as if someone, well, sells out. So, so you have multiple shareholders in this company and you have minority shareholders and majority shareholders. You might want a situation where the people who own 90% who are selling out, they have to bring along the 10% shareholder as well and, and do a deal for them. As as part of it's part of the come along drag along rights. Uh, I don't know if you ever have heard of those, but you can have essentially agreements that figure out how share transfers are to be handled between majority and minority shareholders if they're selling to a third party. And and that's a bit more complicated, but it, that's in our standard constitution, but it isn't in the replaceable rules. Another thing would be you can customise how you want decisions to be made, because there won't be this level of detail about if there are specific decisions you want to be made as an ordinary 50% resolution plus one or a special resolution 75 or unanimous 100% only, there won't be that kind of detail in the replaceable rules. So a standard constitution can even deal with those sort of things in a schedule. Then probably the last main thing would be our standard constitution has default loan terms. So if a company makes a loan to a shareholder without a written loan agreement then that's a a, uh, can be a division 7a deemed dividend because division 7a says a loan will be deemed dividend if it isn't for the right rate or the right term or if it isn't in writing so our standard constitution has what we call default loan terms in a schedule to that document saying if any loan is made by uh, the company to its shareholders then these these default rules will apply and they uh, pretty much link into division 7a and do all the things that division 7a wants so that it's actually a, treated as a loan for tax purposes and not a deemed dividend
1: so your standard constitution basically already has a division 7a agreement embedded so you can't be called out by division 7a as long as of course as long as you make the minimum repayments
0: that's exactly right Yes, it does. That's just in the standard.
1: I have one more question for you, and that is amending the constitution. I think the constitution needs to state how it will be amended, correct? Every constitution must state how it can be amended.
0: I don't think it needs to actually say so, but the Corporations Act says how it can be amended, which is by special resolution, 75%. Okay,
1: good. So if the constitution doesn't cover how it is amended, then the replaceable rules come in for that particular point, and they say with 75%, you can change it.
0: Pretty much, yes. 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 And Section so, 137. Okay,
1: good. And so the replaceable rules are basically always as a safety net behind the constitution. So if there turns out to be a gap in the constitution, then the replaceable rules just basically plug that hole. You can't say the replaceable rules don't apply, correct? You can only say as long as we cover something, the replaceable rules don't apply. But if there is something we don't cover, because, for example, the replaceable rules, the legislation might have changed, if there's something we don't cover in the Constitution, then the replaceable rules apply, correct?
0: Not exactly. So the replaceable rules, they date back to the 1850s as well when they developed sort of this system of registration for companies. And they created the default rules, which are now called replaceable rules. They will apply unless you specifically turn them off in your constitution. But you can say in your con- you can have a constitution and say I want to follow the rules in this constitution, but also keep the replaceable rules. So you could have both. But typically, every constitution I've seen and the ones that we prepare, they say at the beginning the replaceable rules are uh, well, we're not using them, we're wiping them out, and we're just using the constitution. So you you can turn them off is the point. And that's what most people tend to do.
1: Okay. So if the replaceable rules change, it doesn't matter. Your constitution is unaffected by that. That's exactly right. There have never been any replaceable rules that say you must follow such and such rules or meaning you need to change the constitution to comply with the law?
0: Not in the replaceable rules. And And that sort of is, that's the reason they're the replaceable rules, right? They're the ones that are sort of... They're here by default, but you can replace them and turn them off at your leisure. Oh,
1: so yes, very there good are point.
0: sections of the Corporations Act which you can't turn off, but they're not replaceable rules, right? So that's how that works.
1: I guess the courts are full of court cases where constitutions didn't cover something that they should have covered, correct? I guess it doesn't make big headlines because in the end it just means that one shareholder feels duped and another shareholder feels they have won correct
0: i haven't worked on any issues like that myself but i i've, I've seen them happen and they like you say they're, they're not making headlines but because they're they're sort of the more humdrum examples of where you have the, the two guys in business and one dies and then the wife owns half of the company or she owns the factory that the business was uh, run from and The problem is everyone's in a deadlock because there isn't really anything to resolve this because everyone's within their legal rights. She's got 50% of the company. She's a 50% shareholder. So she has all the rights in the world to continue with that. There isn't a way to expel her really without having a tailored constitution or whatever in place. So it always has to be this painful negotiated outcome, which pisses everybody off essentially. So,
1: so because this is just a dispute between two people that tend not to make the headlines.
0: Pretty much. I mean, I would say that um, headline-making companies are probably usually public companies. i am being sort of talking mostly about private or proprietary limited companies here. But public companies, they, they usually have all this stuff in place already with their documentation. So they don't have the same sorts of issues. But you do come across, like I think it was... Is it like Rupert Murdoch, he has only a few shares, relatively speaking, in News Corp Limited, but there's special class of shares, which allow him to control most things. So, so stuff like class rights, are, are, that can all be contained in the Taylor constitution as well. But and those can create issues if people aren't aware of them and how they work. So there is a lot of, there's still always, every fight about these public companies is often a corporate governance fight. And all of that comes down to what's your documentation, what's in your constitution. So it's it's an issue for small to large enterprises everywhere, really. If you're on your own in business and you have a company, probably get a standard constitution. Don't rely on the replaceable rules. If you have two people in business or more, then look at a tailored constitution And think about all the things that can go wrong if someone passes away or becomes disabled or becomes divorced and all that stuff. And uh, how those things that can go wrong should be recorded in in a bit more of a tailored constitution. Uh, And also think a bit further at the final level if you have multiple companies or a unit trust or whatever around whether... If something happened, if all of a sudden some person passed away, what's going to happen to all of those things in those entities? Will the business continue? Is the factory going to remain where it is? All that stuff. So that's what I would say about it.
1: Welcome back. So merge your shareholder agreement into your constitution and get a constitution tailored to your circumstances if you have more than one shareholder. In the next episode, episode 272, Jeff Steen of Brownright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will talk about the capital of companies. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.
0: I can tell you a little story if you're interested about the history because I love, I love all this history stuff. So yes. as we know, the law moves slow and... Usually there's economic concerns that that move the law along, but also there's corporate crises that move the law along. And there was a famous corporate collapse in, uh, I think, 1720 uh, because there was this company called the South Sea Company, and uh, it was incorporated in uh, 1711, I believe. And I was through this shady guy who was related to the British government at the time, and the British government had a lot of debt because it was fighting all sorts of wars all over the place. And this company arranged to kind of do a debt swap and anyway, there was all, all sort of made up stuff that this guy did to make the company seem valuable. And there was the first big hyped company back in 17, mid early 1700s and uh, was we so hyped that even the king of England became the CEO of this company. And um, the share prices just kept going up and up more and more pounds and everyone didn't want to miss out. So they're all buying. We have a middle class that is now burgeoning because we have the new world trading going on, but it was all sham. <laughs> it was all worthless. And it was almost like a pyramid scheme, the way it was uh, set up. And so in 1720, everything blew up. The King of England at the time was one of the Bavarian houses, a German fellow, and he wasn't particularly liked by the British already. So, he kind of needed a lot of help from his advisors to kind of make it seem like you know we're, we're, everyone's upset they've lost their money and we don't want to uh, we don't want to hate the king as well right so his main advisor was a guy called Robert Walpole who was as part of his sort of cabinet that he had and robert walpole was a real from what i can understand a bit of a schemer he had he had shares in this south sea company and he was also criticizing it publicly he was a parliamentarian as well uh, but he sort of helped the king escape from the scandal. He kind of smoothed things over and said, oh, the king was duped, he wasn't involved and all that sort of stuff. And he became then indispensable to the king. And he became the number one guy in his cabinet. He became the first minister amongst the others. He became the prime minister. And so he's now, the, he was the first prime minister ever that I can tell that, well, that office got created essentially through his process. And so if you look up British prime ministers, he's listed as the first British prime minister there is. And and from what I can see that because of this corporate collapse that happened, that created this whole thing of a prime minister, which is still a weird office that every Commonwealth country has a prime minister, but it's not mentioned in the constitution of any of these nations. But because of that Corporate issue that happened then, that guy got power and then he handed on this sort of role to the next guy who was Prime Minister and so on until today. And so Australia has a Prime Minister as well because of that whole process, because of a corporate collapse in the 1720s. That's
1: That's interesting interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. It's interesting to me as well, but maybe we're the only two.
0: Well, you can edit that part out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But did this guy then go to France after that and start something similar again because i've heard a similar story of somebody who went to england and created some mischief and then went to france and created more mischief but was one of the first maybe the first who introduced france to the concept of money as in terms of paper money in terms of money being just a document and not being coins and silver etc
0: he sort of invented the idea of credit i think Yes. Is that more what he did? I, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember if that was the guy in charge or I think the guy in charge of the books of the failed company. I think it was the second guy, but I don't know. We're all going to have yes. to Google this. To <laughs> yes. find out. But I have heard of that person. And, and there was all sorts of stuff where because Robert Walpole was, was in deal with him somehow and he was in charge of the government, but he had to then pretend like he was chasing that guy across Europe even though he didn't want to find him because if he found him, then he would spill the beans and everyone, including him. So they arranged for like the British police to go, I think to France or, or Denmark or something like that to pick him out of the jail cell. But then they arranged for him to escape again so they couldn't get him again. <laughs> All sorts of fun and games back then. I find you can't understand the law, and tax law is my main thing, right? Tax law is a whole nother one that Everything seems weird. Why do we have the system we have now? But when you learn about the system before the current one and the history and all the stuff, you, you kind of understand, oh, so that's why that exists and why that's doing that. Because on its own, like the shareholders agreement, why do we have this thing that now no one needs? It, because mm. of the last 500 years. And until you know that, it really makes no sense. It's just like, oh, we have them because we have them. People just use them. You know but that doesn't make sense you, you can't really feel like you understand that until you look a bit further back you know a bit more in the history.